Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Welcome to Upfront. I'm Chloe Morgan and I'm Rachel O'Sullivan. On today's show, no rest for the wicked with a break in the WSL as the Conti Cup threw in a few surprises for us to chat about. We also preview England's international break with Friday's game against the USA, a sellout. And we look into the damning report that's just come out about the abuse across America's NWSL. Joining us today is an absolute legend. I mean, we had a couple of legends last week. We've had Jenna Scalacci, we've had, uh, you know, Football Beyond Borders, Rene Hector. But this week, it's big. It's bloody big. Our guest has played over 100 games for Chelsea, 18 times for England and for Team GB at London 2012. Since retired, but still working in the game as a transfer wizard. It is none other than Claire Raffi. Welcome, Claire. Oi. Hello everyone, how's it going? I was going to go, oi oi. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, if we'd, if we'd have been in the studio, it would have been a bit of a hype man type thing. Um, yeah, I mean, it's always lovely to have an absolute legend, hero, inspirational role model, transfer wizard on our podcast. I mean, that that's pretty big. So uh, yeah, thanks. Thanks so much for joining us today. Um, All right, gang. Uh, well, I think we've got to start with the big Conti Cup fixtures this weekend. A uh, couple of upsets, uh, about 4,000 penalties that have taken place um and obviously for my own team not not the greatest of weekends um but I mean it's a competition I absolutely love I bloody love it um you know it feels to me like there's a big chance for you know some of the younger players to come through your second keepers to get a chance on a run out you know some of the championship squads getting that opportunity to you know play against WSL squads see how well they've recruited see how maybe far away they are or where the gap is closing so you know I really I think it's a nice competition to have straight at the start of the season straight in but you know I understand that you guys aren't you know that fussed about it or don't think it's a big deal you know what I, I think for me it's just a little bit confusing I think it's quite an interesting competition I think it's great to uh, get some of the younger players to get some minutes those potentially who, are not, who are, haven't been playing um, but I need to be explained how the process actually works I think the penalty situation just confuses me a little bit yeah and I mean um, we've had a fair few penalties this this weekend it's been bonkers I mean, the game I went to ended in penalties. The West Ham London City Lionesses, I think there was something like 26 penalties taken. I think something ridiculous like that. Um, But I do like the competition. I like the idea of another cup. As you said, it's good for teams. You know, they play more football. Players will get more minutes. Maybe players who don't normally get as many minutes, you know, get more minutes. We saw last year how Carla Ward definitely used it for like her younger players at Aston Villa. Definitely not doing that this season um, for the cup because they, they came out strong against Man United. But I just think it's good. Allows them to maintain, you know, some momentum. 
and allows teams lower down the league to play kind of bigger teams or championship teams to play bigger teams and challenge themselves. And, and that's, for me, how the game's going to grow. Yeah, massively. And I think um, that that's the best opportunity that there is for it. But I, I've got to agree with you, Claire. I mean, it is bloody confusing. I mean, they sort of changed it up last season that if you, it was a draw at the end of the game, you go to penalties, you had, you'd get one point just for going to penalties and then you'd pick up a second point if you won the penalties. So um, as well as that, there's also a new format in the competition this year. I mean, Chelsea and Arsenal are exempt for playing uh, the first round as they're playing the Champions League. And then the remaining two, 22 teams are split into two northern groups and three southern groups and they then play a mini league and then the best runner-up <laughs> would join Chelsea and Arsenal with the quarterfinals so if you can kind of get your head around that it's uh, it's definitely worth a watch um, <laughs> yeah I think the next couple of games are going to be played in November and then I think in December but you know touching on some of the results this weekend I mean the big one that stands out for me it's got to be Villa Man United um, you know Villa um, taking it to, to a draw with, with Man United Paris scoring in the 16th minute and then Dave Daily, a lovely little goal in the 72nd minute, taking it to penalties and then the penalty shootout. I mean, <laughs> Rach, what were your thoughts on that? There was uh, quite a lot of drama. Yeah, um, Villa really impressed me, actually. Um, I thought they were good in the first half, but they were much better in the second. Like they came out, they put their foot on the gas. They really limited Man United's opportunities. And I think probably a bit unlucky not to come away with the win in normal time. Um Anna Leach making her debut was absolutely unbelievable in goal. Um, she made some cracking penalty saves. So did Sophie Bagley for uh, Manchester United as well. But she also pulled out a stop in the 93rd minute, 1v1 against Alatoon, and she made a super save. So a great debut for her. I was, yeah, really impressed with, with Villa's performance. I've got to agree with you. I think they came out strong in the second half. I think the intensity across uh, the midfield was massive for them. Uh, they brought on a sub, uh, Brown, who I think added a lot of flair in the midfield uh, and got a shot, shot off, which hit the post. Um, and then Skinner sort of trying to introduce Hannah Blundell, Hayley Ladd, uh, Lucia Gathia, uh, <laughs> to try and inject some kind of, um, you know, passion and energy into, into the game. Because I think Man United did look flat at points. But, you know, with um, with the penalty shootout going into, you know, Bagley sort of ended up being a bit of a hero, but ultimately being very frustrated by the fact that she saved three penalties only to have some of her best um, you know, level-headed, confident goal scorers not convert penalties. I just thought that was a bit of a, a shock, really. That should, be, should should have been better, do you think? You know what? I think uh, when you step up and take a penalty, you never really, um, you know, you, you, you can be full of confidence and then before you know it, you can, you kind of, the, the ground can, can sink beneath your feet. I just speaking from experiences, having uh, missed penalties in quite important game, being incredibly confident going into them. Um, I think normally it's the defenders who tend to be the best bet these days. <laughs> I mean, what, in, in terms of kind of your, your experience, Claire, as a, as a penalty taker, I mean, do you have any kind of like top tips or techniques or, you know? Well, I soon, I soon of- went down the list to be fair Chloe <laughs> I think at first it was um, very much I was quite young and uh, fearless so um, the expectation was you know more I want to you know do 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 something for my team I want to win the game for them and then um, I soon realized that you know lefters can't really take penalties so I better stop putting my hand up <laughs> I think that is the fear. I think because the expectation is on the striker to score the penalty, the expectation is off the goalkeeper to save it. And I think, you know, for me, it always feels like a, a less pressurised situation because the, the odds are so stacked against me. But, you know, there's so much kind of um, information and behind the scenes footage and um, statistics about where penalty strikers are supposed to, are most likely to go. So, you know, I'm, I'm assuming Bagley did a lot of research to be able to save three penalties, but let down a bit by the by the squad. 
must be so hard though. Like when so many penalties get taken, <laughs> you get to a point where you're like, oh God, which way does she go? Who, like, I can't remember what they said in training. <laughs> like, I know I obviously don't, didn't play football, so I can't give experience on that, but I was a goalkeeper in hockey and I know how she feels. I remember saving three goals in a penalty shootout and we still lost. So I can understand her frustrations. But you've let it go now. You don't sound bitter at all, no, Rachel. No, not bitter at no. all. No, <laughs> not in the slightest video of my face right now. <laughs> raging but I think um, I mean that wasn't the only sort of mad penalty shootout situation I mean West Ham went on to win against London City Lionesses and you know the game ended 2-2 in full time and it was Iceland's I mean I'm going to get this wrong in terms of the, the pronunciation of this so bear with me Bryn Yarr's Dartir. Oh, wow. All right, Rach. All right, thanks for that. That helped. Um, yes. Who got the injury time equaliser to take it to Penns. But I mean, London City Lionesses, what an absolute result for them. Going up against a WSL squad, obviously London City have got quite a lot of experience in the sort of professional full-time outfit. So you'd expect that the, the standard wouldn't be so much that there'd be a massive gap there. But I just thought really impressive from them, Rach. Did you manage to catch the game at all? No, just the, just looking back on the FA player. Um, but it sounded bonkers. I mean, it tells this is why we love the Conti Cup. Quite hard to keep up with on Twitter while at another game. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I love it. This is great. And, and a great showing from London City Lionesses. It just shows you that, you know, you saw Birmingham beat Brighton. You know, teams from the championship come up and really do something against WSL t- teams. It's brilliant. No, absolutely. And I think obviously, I mean, Claire, you spent some time at, at West Ham. Um, have you managed to kind of catch much of their performances this this season, sort of last season? Um, do you think they've sort of come a long way in terms of where they were when, when you were playing for them? Yeah, you know what? I don't really recognise them. I, I went to see um, Chelsea versus West Ham and I think the the kind of the, the investment in the whole infrastructure of West Ham has improved a lot. Um, and with that, there's certain aspects which I just saw that I noticed straight away just from my time was was more so the um, kind of just over the fitness levels of, of, of the players. Um, and then on top of that, just kind of just the, just the buy-in. It looked like there was a big buy-in. Obviously, when we were playing, I think we were we obviously all bought into the ethos of, of the club. But um, it seems like there is a lot more professional nature um, that has been adopted. And I think recruitment has been has been great. They've obviously um, had quite a, t- a turnover of players. But um, I think, yeah, the growth, I think the first 40 minutes of that game versus Chelsea, um, they, they gave a good show for themselves. Obviously, they scored early as well. Um, I give a shout out to Dan Buett, who's on the coaching staff there, who does some of the set pieces. Should be very happy with that. But, um, but yeah, I think um, overall they are closing that gap. Um, and yeah, I think the recruitment, the quality of recruitment is, is a credit to that. Absolutely. Um, no, it's sort of it's so nice to get some kind of input from you know someone who's been there, done it, and been in and around the setup, and I suppose seen it grow. Um, and I think I mean we've got to touch now on you know the, the next one, Birmingham Brighton, three uh, two to Birmingham, bit of an upset. Um, Rachel, did you manage to catch the game at all for that? No, because they're all on at the same bloody time. So I was at your game, <laughs> Crystal Palace. Oh, did you not have Bristol, seven but... screens going on? <laughs> We're not going to talk about your game. Um, But yeah, I was very impressed with Birmingham. Um, And I think Brighton kind of had a bit of a comeback. Um, I thought maybe they might snatch a draw at the end, but Birmingham are resilient and, you know, really impressed with them because we've seen in the championship, they've taken points off some teams, but not off others. So sometimes it was a bit hard to to really see how they were going to do in the championship. Um, So yeah, I think that's been a, a really good result from them because we similarly saw Brighton not start off well and then, you know, find their footing a little bit. Um, so they've been knocked down a little bit by Birmingham. So it will give Birmingham some confidence massively. 
Yeah, I think, um, you know, obviously going into the games uh, the next couple of weeks, I think, you know, Birmingham are one of those ones that you don't really know what you're going to expect until they're out there. Um, being a, a few absolutely massive goals there, Jade Pennock being an absolute menace throughout the uh, throughout the game, causing all kinds of upset for, for Brighton. But, you know, really impressive, actually. Really impressive game for them. I thought they looked strong. All right, so, I mean, the Champions League groups, uh, we've just had sort of the big announcements about where everyone's going, where everyone's fitting. Um, I mean, we discussed this briefly before the pod kicked off and there is a, a, a there's a definitely a sense of uh, groups of death this uh, this year. Um, Arsenal are in Group C with Lyon, Juventus and Zurich. Uh, group A is going to be Chelsea, PSG, Real Madrid and Vl- Vlasna, Vlasnia. Yes, Vlasnia. Yes. Group B, uh, Wolfsburg, Slavia Prague, St. Polten and Roma. And Group D, Barcelona, uh, Bayern Munich, Rosengard and Benfica. Um, so, I mean, for me, I know it's group I would want to be in. Um, and it would probably be <laughs> <laughs> Group B. Uh, I mean, Rach, obviously you caught some of the games uh, with Arsenal uh, playing play Ajax uh, over last week. Um, how, how were things over there? How was it looking for Arsenal in their sort of uh, campaign this season, Champions League? Well, it's been tough for them. Um, the first leg, I think Arsenal probably should have put it away, should have should have won the first leg. Um, it ended up being 2-2. So they had to go to Amsterdam and win that match. And it was it was a testy match, really unpleasant conditions, absolutely lashing rain. We had a whole weird issue of the goals being um, too short, something that Kim Little noticed in the warm-up because she's never normally able to touch the crossbar. So they had to get their ladders out before the game and uh, try and fix the goals, which is... Quite an unusual thing to happen in the Champions League um, and a bit suspicious. Uh, and, and they had the ladders out again at half time. So that was weird in itself. Um, and it was Miedema who came up with the goal in the second half uh, for them to, to win the game ultimately. But it was it was a tough game. It was a physical game. Um, Beth Mead went, went off with what looked like a nasty head injury. Thankfully, she's okay now. Um, but yeah, it was, it was physical. And I think, you know, Ajax just are showing that there are plenty of teams now in Europe that are contenders um to get into the Champions League and that's why we're seeing so many groups that are so bloody hard like three of those groups are groups of death there's no question um and it's going to be tough for both Arsenal and Chelsea yeah I think when you look at I mean Arsenal's next game they're going to be facing uh you know the the Champions League holders Lyon um and then going into Juventus as well how, how do you think they're going to fare for that I feel like you know they've bolstered the squad this year a couple of great new signings Hurted coming in um, you know, there's sort of this three-way partnership that's going on with, you know, um, Miedemar, Black Sidious and Hurtig. Do you feel that this year could be the year that, you know, they really do some serious damage in the Champions League? Uh, um, I, I think it's kind of hard to know from what we've seen from Arsenal so far, uh, to be honest, um, mm-hmm. because I, you know, they they played really well against Tottenham and then they came out and they were they weren't brilliant against um, Ajax. They've they've lost Souza to injury; she's going to be out for a couple of weeks, and Leah Williamson is also pulled out of the England squad um, with injury. We don't really know what the nature of that injury is either. So. There is also that element of, of what squad will be available um, for Arsenal against Lyon. I mean, of all games to kick off your Champions League group stage <laughs> to the, to, away to the holders, it's probably not what you wanted. Um, I just think they're going to need to be firing on all bloody cylinders uh, if they want to get something out of that game. 
I think that's the thing. I mean, there's absolutely no room for error. You either come and bring your A game or, or you're going to be facing exit from the competition pretty quickly. Um, and I think that's what the Champions League has become um, in, the, in the past couple of years, that you just don't have. You don't have a second chance, really. Um, but I mean, Group A, we're sort of looking at Chelsea, PSG, Real Madrid and Vlasnia. Um, obviously, I'll touch on this with you, Claire. I mean, obviously, being a, an ex-Chelsea player, um, you must have seen so much progression with them. Obviously, you know, they made the 2021 final, um, but haven't made it in any other final in, in the UEFA competition. Do you think that this could be maybe their year? They've also recruited very well this year. Yeah, you know what? I think that Chelsea are just desperate to, to win it. Obviously, winning three back-to-back league titles, the next progression for Emma Hayes and her team is to, is to win that Champions League. So um, I think the group is, you know, is... is Difficult is it as difficult as uh, Arsenal's uh, group? I don't know. I think it matches it quite equally. Um, but yeah, I think obviously we haven't progressed past um, past the, the, um, the knockout uh, rounds um, last season, so obviously missed out on that. Um, and I do think uh, it seems like it, there's almost becoming a bit of a mental block around the Champions League for Chelsea. Obviously, it was so close at that final against Barcelona a couple of years ago. Um, but yeah, I think the recruitment-wise, the focus this season, 100%, will be Champions League, and she, you can see in the in the people that um, Emma Hayes has recruited and um, strengthening her, her team, the core of that team, the spine, in order to uh, win these Champions League games. Yeah, massively, and I think um, you know maybe it's going to be her lucky year. It's her tenth year in charge, uh, achieved so much already, but I feel like it's that that elusive title for her that I think is is, is going to make her sort of give it that extra push. Um, obviously, Chelsea didn't start the WSL season too too well, but I think they'll be looking to obviously make make amends in uh, in this competition, and that'll be big for them. Um, yeah, touching then sort of briefly on Group D, we've got Barcelona, Bayern Munich, Rosengarden, Benfica. Um, I mean, the only thing I can kind of point out about this is the uh, slightly enjoyable Gareth Taylor derby here as Bronze and Walsh go up against Stanway. Um, <laughs> yeah, what, what, what do you think we're going to expect in that kind of game, uh, Rach? Oh, that's going to be great, isn't it? That's going to be an exciting fixture. Um, Bayern Munich have been doing well over the years, so they could get, they could push Barcelona close. Um, so yeah, I'm looking forward to that one. That one's a bit of a group of death as well, a little bit. I just, I mean, maybe slightly less group deathy than A and B, but um, still a tough group all the same. But yeah, I'm looking forward to that one. I'm looking forward to seeing Georgia Stanway playing in Champions League um, for Bayern Munich as well. A different type of football for her, uh, so it should be a good a good matchup. Absolutely love that. It's the less it's the less deathy group of death out of all of the groups of death in this competition. Um, I think that's a great way to sum up what's happened in the Champions League this year. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, how to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com.
Just a note that the following section contains reference to sexual abuse and harassment. All right, so big news um, in the NWSL um, that's just come about. I think it was released yesterday, last Mm -hmm. night, the night before. Um, Last night. Obviously, some really harrowing um, things have been emerging from the Sally Yates report uh, on abuse in women's soccer. Um, I mean, this time last year, NWSL players protested mid-matches as allegations of sexual abuse, harassment and bullying rocked the league. And now a report from Sally Yates to look into these allegations. I mean... Her report is 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 massive, uh, over 319 pages long. She interviewed over 200 players, um, and the summary basically included, or was you know the, the comments that were made. Uh, you know, abuse in the NWSL is rooted in a deeper culture in women's soccer, beginning in youth leagues that normalises verbally abusive coaching and blurs the boundaries between coaches and players. I mean, this is huge. Um, you know, the ripple effect of this report, I'm hoping, is gonna. Um, you know, really make people understand what's been going on for the past however many years uh, and that it's not just at elite level, it's from everything from elite down to grassroots and into youth leagues. Um, you know, Claire, have, have you managed to sort of um, see much of, of the report? Yeah, I, I mean, I read I read a few articles um, that have been reported around this situation and I just think it's um, it's just absolutely tragic. I think that, you know, it's really slow to react from, from some of the outcomes I can I can see and just a whole kind of review of, 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 of a player care needs to be needs to be reviewed um, in, in, in women's sport by the looks of it. And in terms of kind of um, Claire, your experiences with you know being at such elite WSL clubs in in your time, um, what kind of player care have you kind of seen in around those clubs? What things or was there sort of set up and infrastructure there at, at the time when you were there? Yeah, to be honest, it's, it's probably one criticism that I, that I would have um, is is probably just a lack of that infrastructure, um, a lack of process maybe around how you can report some of these issues. Um, and I guess in football, because it's based on opinion, there is a, there's almost a fear factor um, that, is a, that is involved in reporting some of these issues. Um, you know, will it jeopardise your, your, your role in the team, etc., etc.? There's a kind of like a power play, isn't there? Um, however, I, I do think that infrastructure around some of these, some of these um, sporting teams does need to be reviewed. There needs to be clear processes, and there needs to be a swift. Um, an efficient um, uh, structure in order to to make sure this uh, reports are, are dealt with quickly, um, and in, and before we even get to there, just deal with the source as it is, and, and make sure that there are people are properly vetted. I think that that's the thing. I know Rachel, when we sort of discussed this um, pre-pod, we were kind of talking about you know, where their accountability is going to be and why there is this this sense that, you know, coaches who have committed these kinds of crimes can just freely go from another club to another club and just continue to sort of, you know, perpetuate the, the abuse and harassment. I mean, um, yeah, I mean, you've obviously read through the report, you've read loads of articles on it. What, what was sort of coming out or jumping out for, for you about this? Well, the thing I find most shocking is that these organisations think that they can retain these kinds of reports in-house and deal with it in-house. Like, you know, you see it at universities over there as well. Similarly, it's something that they want to handle internally, which personally I think is is wild, especially when there is this complete lack of accountability. Um, And the main objective seems to be protecting the club as opposed to protecting the victim. So a lot of these a lot of the things that are done are done with the objective of protecting the club in, you know, the media, etc. And ultimately what you've ended up doing is making things absolutely 10 times worse because you're just moving around effectively these predators into other situations and putting more people at risk. Um, there was a line in the report that probably one of the toughest lines 
there was a lot of tough parts of it, but there, in some of the articles I read, one of the lines that stood out for me was that the report states that players, coaches and staff were conditioned to accept and respond to abusive coaching behaviours as youth players. By the time they reach the professional level, many do not recognise the conduct as abuse. And I just, that is so, so grim. Like to be conditioned to that kind of abuse is disgraceful. And it makes the accounts of the players who then have come forward all the more harrowing and and worse still that many of these accounts were largely ignored like if you're in an organization where you're you're putting forward these accounts and they're being ignored it, it makes it almost you know it's so brave to do that but for these people to keep coming forward almost kind of knowing they're going to be ignored makes it all the more brave and and i just yeah it's heartbreaking really the whole thing yeah, I think, um, you know, as, as an example of, you know, what, what you were just touching on there, I mean, you know, Paul Riley, the former Portland Thorns coach, uh, was fired after repeated allegations of sexual misconduct. But, I mean, the Thorns didn't even make this public, uh, didn't pass this, on from, this information on to North Carolina Courage to where he'd moved. So you've, you do have this sense of, you know, you can kind of get away unnoticed with, with what you do in one club and have a completely clean slate when you start at another club. Um, I mean, I know there was, there was a number of conclusions that were kind of outlined, um, you know, a number of recommendations that was sort of aimed at preventing abuse in future. Um, you know, sort of, Claire, what, what were your kind of thoughts on, you know, how we learn from this going forwards? Yeah, I think you touched on there, just the duty of care, the, the way that, that these managers are being passed around without any accountability actually just makes me feel a bit sick um, to, to think that. But I, I think for me that the instant responses need to be a review of, of anyone who's in a position of power. Um, obviously different, um, obviously when you're employing someone, how, how you actually vet that person. Um, and then just the whole infrastructure, you know, what are the processes? Do the players know exactly what the processes are um, in order to report something like this? How can we empower the players to feel like they do have a voice? Um, as I said before, there can be a bit of a, uh, um, it's, you know, you can think twice about it um, because you think it might jeopardise your, your place in a team or, or, or something like that. So I, I do think there needs to be a, um, almost like a whistleblower um, programme where, players, I don't know whether it's led by the league or whether it's led by individual clubs, I would, I would tend to look more so at the league um, in order to um, actually make sure you're covering all the, all the bases here, but I think that is probably the best process in order to prevent some of these, uh, some of these situations occurring again. Yeah, massively. And I think um, it is that kind of safeguarding infrastructure um, and the ability of players to feel that they're in a trusted environment where if they come forward, they're going to be believed. Um, you know, I mean, obviously myself as a, as a player, you know, if there are things that are going on behind the scenes and, and this is not a reference to any kind of abuse at all, but just things that aren't quite right at the club or things that, um, you know, you, you think that conditions could be improved or resources or whatever it is. I mean, there's never ever been that sense of it's been OK to talk about it. And it, I think it was quite refreshing last week, obviously off the back of what happened uh, with the Spanish national team. And there were 15 players there um, who sort of collectively combined wrote that um, email to to the uh, to the federation to kind of say well we're, we're we're not happy with how things are going and to use their platform to to say this is what they were going to do about it and I feel like you know an empowering moment like that I'm hoping is going to then transcend into other national teams um, and on the back of this report and the recommendations that have been outlined that this will hopefully take things forward and and like you said Claire kind of empower people going forwards. I will say I think it for me it should make us look as at sport 
as a whole and how we treat sport as a whole and how we treat players and clubs and what we deem important and the most important things. And in a lot of these situations, the most important thing is the sport. The most important thing is the club and it's not the people. You know, players often get treated, we touched on it um, in the discussion earlier, Claire, about like commodities, you know, and at the end of the day, that should be the biggest priority. It shouldn't be, you know, oh, well, you might damage the football team or you might damage the, the reputation of the club by coming forward with something like this. That shouldn't ultimately be the priority. The priority should be the person who's been a victim. And I think sometimes we can allow sport to be above everything else. You know, we, we this isn't going to be the only country that this comes out of. You know, I think we're going to see this in more countries. And I think it should make clubs look at the way that they treat these situations. And rather than just thinking about protecting the club, and we've, we've seen it in the men's game here, protecting the club, it should be about the victims first and foremost. And I think sometimes we get a little bit carried away about sport and we think it's the most important thing. Um, and it sometimes then taints the way that these situations are handled. Yeah, I mean, I think what would be amazing, I think, right, right, you kind of touched on it just there, was, you know, not to have this kind of reactive approach to, um, obviously, you need this kind of report to expose this kind of abuse. But, you know, for other countries where maybe, you know, this kind of thing isn't going on, I don't think there's a sense that we can be complacent that it won't ever happen. So, you know, putting in place those processes, doing a report, doing a bit of an audit about how things are now would be a fantastic thing to see across more um, countries across more nations um, to hopefully prevent similar things occurring. You um, I mean, I think it was quite the conclusions and, you know, the recommendations that were made, uh, you know, holding wrongdoers accountable, enhancing transparency, fostering a professional environment, um, you know, and sort of better vetting of coaches as well, I think is, is absolutely going to be or key. Or any vetting of coaches. Or any, yeah, just any vetting of you know, any basic vetting of coaches would would obviously um, you know hopefully prevent things like this happening in in future. But I think um, also one of the most worrying things about this report was just the the sort of the clubs failing to provide documents or coercing witnesses. It was like because the club is the most important thing. It's manipulation, isn't it? Mm-hmm. I think as you touched on there, Chloe, the um, transparency. I mean, it's something that massively is lacking in football. Um, I think the transparency in all different levels, you know, um, let alone kind of the basic um, human needs of, of, a, of a player. I think that that's where where, where sports and football is, is, is really lacking. Because, um, yeah, I, I can certainly speak as, as being treat, felt, feeling like almost just tradable, because you are, you are tradable. Um, and I think sometimes you can feel like that, which, which takes away your power. Mm. I think it's that there's such a vulnerability, I think, with being a football player sometimes. Uh, the contracts are short. You don't know whether speaking up is going to affect your position on the pitch, on the team. Um, and especially now, you know, for younger players, I think the pressure is so much more because they're, you know, trying to make a good impression, wanting to do everything the coaches are saying, the managers are saying. Um, and I think that just, that leads to such a, a, a an unusual power dynamic. And especially where you've got, you know, so many young players now that are being managed by, you know, groups of, men in, in in a lot of a lot of occasions in the WSL and championship and I think you know you can't get away from that being an environment that you you know you need to just keep a, a really close eye on and make sure that everything is is above board but yeah warning it's a, it's an upsetting read it doesn't make for a good read at all um but no thanks for sharing your, your thoughts and comments on that guys I appreciate that's not um not an easy one to to touch on Next up, I mean, we've got England, USA. You couldn't ask for a better Friday night. Um, I mean, 
a couple of things have happened. A couple of game changes. Uh, Alicia Russo has just been withdrawn from the squad through injury. Uh, Leah Williamson as well, uh, just pulling out um, today. Chloe Kelly and Frank Kirby are back in after missing the September qualifiers. It's going to be a sold out crowd. I think it's going to, you know, the atmosphere I think is going to be, I mean, nothing's going to compare to the, the Euros finals. But, you know, that kind of crowd at a Wembley Stadium with, you know, the reigning World Cup champs. Uh, first time these teams have played each other at Wembley. I mean, what can we expect here? I mean, Claire, were you at the, the Women's Euros game? Did you Were you at the final? Did you kind of get that? Yeah, I, yeah mean, I mean, it was absolutely incredible. I don't know how you're going to top that, but I mean, I'm expecting it on Friday. Um, yeah, I think the fans, obviously, coming back to Wembley, um, it's, it's sold out. Um, also, a, a, a little teaser, if you guys didn't know, there's a all the ex-Lionesses are doing a march around the pitch at half-time. Um, so it's going to be a bit of a... A bit of a throwback to um, kind of where the game is, has has, has uh, been and, and where it's at now, um, which oh, I think really is a really beautiful. nice touch. Yeah, so um, so there'll be some old faces and some people who have really changed the game, and then we combine that with you know our players having just won the Euros. Um, what a great celebration it is! I'm I'm super excited. Are you going to the game, Claire? You're going to be there? Oh yeah, I'm doing my my um, King's Wave. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, <laughs> just to put some context, we don't, we can't currently see the, uh, we can't currently see Claire on camera. But if we did, we'd most certainly be asking um, you to do a uh, practice run of that. Um, <laughs> we might get you to do that just afterwards. Uh, yeah, I'll love do to that. See no that. Um, but yeah, Rachel, you're going as well. What, what do you think we're going to expect at the game? Well, what makes this really exciting is that, like, in the past, it used to always be a big deal for England to play the US, right? Because the US were the best team in the world, so it was always really exciting. But it feels like it's almost a quid pro quo now, like for the US they get to play the European champions at Wembley sold out crowd like it's just as big for both teams and I think that makes it really really exciting um, so yeah I'm just fireworks I suppose I'm sure there might be literal fireworks uh, pyrotechnics of some sort but I just think it's going to be a really exciting atmosphere um, maybe a little bit concerned with some of the injuries um, a little bit concerned with the likes of Leah Williamson being out um, and Alessio Russo um, makes me maybe a little bit nervous just in terms of that leadership but there are a lot of leaders in the squad so um I just think it's gonna be a great match like I was hats off to the FA because they announced that straight after the Euros win and the tickets were gone so fast so it was an excellent excellent move by them and uh, I reckon it'll live up to the hype yeah, and I think, um, you know, the kind of crowd you're expecting, like you said, there's going to be so much, probably going to be DJs and fan zones and that kind of stuff popping off all around the stadium. I mean, Claire, you've obviously, you know, played in situations like that, big crowds, big atmosphere, um, you know, a lot of pressure on your shoulders. I mean, what's it like kind of getting that call up to the squad and, and playing in front of a, you know, a crowd like that? Yeah, you know, it just never gets old. Um, that From the first time where I got called up and I was um, sharing a room with Ellen White when we were at uni, our first ever senior call up. I you remember shared screaming. a room with Ellen White? Yeah, that for is... three years. Called me. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> um, I remember our first call up, yeah, it was kind of, we used to get emails in, so it was, it was um, we both just stood up and we didn't know whether the other one had got in, so it'd like, we'd look at each other, we'd both smiled and just screamed. And I think every single time it's been the same feeling. Um, so, yeah, I, I think... It's only it's like the initial you know selection you like oh buzzing you actually had to then get picked for the team and picked for, um, you know prove yourself in training and then obviously that occasion where you yeah you know you've got the nerves a couple of days before um, I'd like to say it gets easier but it doesn't I think I think it's equally as exciting and nerve wracking at the same time I remember I used to not try not to think about the game 
um, I, you know, I used to know, ask, you know, what, you know, what, what is the details of my role? What do you expect from me? And then I would, I would say, I don't want to talk about it too much more because I'd be someone who would obsess over the opposition and I'd want to know every single detail about them. And sometimes that's not that good because it can just lead to a little bit, a little bit more nervous. So, so yeah, I think the the whole kind of crowd, the buzz outside, obviously all the all the pubs, you know, we were with people full filled with um, England shirts on. I think I've seen that um, only a couple of times whilst I was playing. Obviously, the game was growing. Um, my particular favourite was in Canada when we when we beat Canada. I was hoping um, you were going to bring that up. Fifteen World Cup. Yes, that's my favourite. It's my favourite one ever. I remember that game and I remember... Were you? Of course you yeah, were. Of course yeah. you were. We were. And we were right down the front and like we had a sing song with you at the yeah. end because we had a chant for you. I remember that. Yes. that was, I was going to ask you about that because yeah. that atmosphere was insane. Go on, give us, give, us a, give us a chant, go on. Do you oh, remember it? I, I do, yeah. No, don't, we all, don't, don't, we don't, always don't. sing on this podcast, but um, I think people get sick of it, to be honest. But it was basically to the tune of Cheerleader. Yeah. Yeah, it was a good one. There we go. <laughs> nice <laughs> um, and I think obviously like you, you touched on there about you know what it's like kind of the lead up to the game I mean are you one of those players like once you're on the pitch you kind of you know zone the crowd out or do you kind of use the crowd as you know you're kind of everyone keeps talking about it but and I don't want to say this cheesy line but the, the 12th woman um, yeah you know what um I think once you step on the pitch, it sounds sounds um, it's weird to say, but you kind of just like engulfed in your own world. Um, it's like the noise is is in a dream or something, and you're just kind of so hyper focused um, on the game. I, I think playing at Wembley, playing FA Cups there, playing um, obviously well at uh, Olympics. Obviously, we had there. Um, I think Wembley itself has got its own person persona. Um, I think obviously the stories that have been told there recently with with um, obviously the, the, the Lionesses winning the Euros, I think that gives it an extra um, an extra kind of bite um, and energy um, that I haven't experienced. But what I did experience was that I think obviously playing for Chelsea in some of the bigger games, having that um, loyal fan base cheering you on, then playing for England and winning the World Cups, that um, the energy you do get, and it's kind of like a split second. You'll, you'll. For me, it was whenever I'd go and take a throw in, which I used to hate. By the way, I hate throw ins for some reason. Obviously, <laughs> as left back, I used to always have to take throw ins. But as soon as I stepped out the pitch, it's like I would then hear the noise and the roar of the crowd again. So um, yeah, it's strange, strange. It's like stepping in and out of a portal. <laughs> That's such a, 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 a fantastic insight into like the life of like, you know, what you have to deal with like on the pitch when you're dealing with like big crowds like that. And, um, you know, I've only ever faced it once in my life, really. And like the biggest thing for me was, you know, especially because you're at the back, not being able to hear um, your players in front of you and how you deal with, you know, even just communicating with each other on the pitch when the fans are, you know, popping off with their Mexican waves or chants or whatever it is. So, yeah, it's um, yeah, it's a bit of a crazy environment, but I'm just so glad that we're seeing so much more of it now and, you know, more players starting to experience big occasions like that. Um, and also, I mean, we've got to touch on the fact that, you know, Nikita Paris, we've had a few injuries that have happened uh, in a very short space of time, but really excited to see Nikita Paris uh, being called in to replace uh, Leah Williamson and, and Lucy Parker. And uh, obviously just off the back of, you know, a fantastic weekend for Paris. Do you think, um, you know, this is going to be her sort of call up? Do you think she's going to be, you know, in the starting team, uh, given what's happened at the weekend? She, she might be, yeah, especially given, you know, Alessia Russo's um, isn't playing but I think Paris often plays a bit more of a, a winger role for England but you know we saw her score for England in the last international break I think goals that she really deserved and, and I think she had a tough time at Arsenal we touched on that before um, got her first goal for Man United so hopefully this is all things going the right way for Nikita Paris and, and she'll get a chance in this international break as well 
Yeah, and it's, um, I mean, it's interesting as well. I mean, Serena said that the door is still open for, for Steph Horton as well. Um, obviously, we've not seen her um, play with England for, for quite some time now. I mean, Claire, have you, have you, have you played with Steph before? Um, you know, I know she's sort of in a bit of a, uh, maybe a transitional phase this, this year, still playing for obviously Man City. But um, to me, it kind of looked like she was sort of taking maybe more of a backseat role with the England England squad with, the, with um, not, being, not being the call up for the summer. Yeah, I've played. I've played with, with Steph many times. Um, also, went to uni with with her as well. So we had we went to like a player development centre. So we'd kind of trained together um, for four years. So that was that was kind of good experience. But it's a difficult time in in, in someone's career when you kind of hit the stage where it's, it just gets out of your control. You know, you you get injuries. You can't really um, control your your you know, the situations of your body. Your body's kind of letting you down a little bit, and then you're always playing catch up in a game that's always moving forward. And that's how I. So anyway, I can't obviously speak for Steph, but I'm sure it's it, it's quite an emotional time, but one that you have to expect as a footballer. Um, I mean, she obviously had a fantastic career, and I wouldn't write her off because Steph Horton is 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 a, is, a, is you know a very strong-minded individual, and I wouldn't be surprised to see her back in the England squad. Um, but yeah, I think when you come to this stage in your career, I always felt like I just couldn't get back to where I was because I was injured all the time. And then the game was moving forward, it was getting quicker and quicker. Um, and I was getting slower and slower, <laughs> given all the injuries. And it just, yeah, it just, it's difficult emotionally. It's really difficult emotionally. Yeah, I think, um, I mean, your comments definitely uh, resonate with me. I mean, I've retired in a in a... <laughs> very small way compared to the likes of yourself um and um yeah i think it's um it's that weird scenario where you kind of see the talent that's coming through and all the you know the strength and conditioning the resources facilities and um all the kind of sports science that's now uh, in place that wasn't in place when i started playing football when i was you know six seven eight nine ten years old and you know, like you said, I mean, I had a couple of injuries last year, like torn ligaments, broken fingers and things. And, and I just felt that I was kind of breaking down. Um, and you kind of get to the stage where you, you kind of want to go out gracefully, but you also know that you, you always feel like there's one last game in you that you can keep on carrying on and, and seeing where you kind of get to. Um, but I mean, you touched on there sort of the injuries that, that you'd had. Um, you know, you had, I mean, so unfortunate with the three um, ACL injuries. Um, you know, how, how did that kind of impact you? How, how were you kind of feeling when, when that all happened? Because that was just such a, such a lot to go through. Yeah, to be honest, it was, um, I think at the time, each one I kind of took in my stride. The first one, I was quite young, I was like 16, and um, little did I know that it would have, it would, you know, end up shaping my whole career because consequently you do a, a massive injury like an ACL, then your whole whole structure of how you run changes, you use your, your, your muscles differently, you kind of, you have to compensate constantly. Um, and that unfortunately has you know, had repercussions in my career. I had to re retire relatively early. I had to, you know, sit and watch watch my teammates I grew up with still playing. So I retired at 30, which I think is quite, is quite early. I think if I hadn't had them injuries, I would have kept going for another three years maybe. Um, but yeah, it was, it kind of got more, more up. I was more aware towards the end of my career when, you know, I was just always playing catch up. And then I was got a bit kind of just frustrated and maybe a little bit resentful actually towards myself because I am, um, was 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 always injured and then always never able to fulfill my potential or what I felt like I could could achieve and that was through no fault of my own um which is it can be quite frustrating um but yeah I, I, a lot of injuries so free ACLs <laughs> it's interesting you say that because from my perspective I always looked at you as how incredible it was that you were still playing I think I was there for your 
third ACL injury. I think I remember that one. Um, and I think for maybe us looking in, you may have found it obviously un- understandably frustrating but I remember thinking oh my god she's just playing for England she's done her ACL three times this is incredible like that that's, that was such an amazing thing when when I looked at it from that perspective um and you know we've talked about ACLs in this show before probably not in too much depth but they seem to be almost endemic in in the women's game um there was obviously a lot of big names with their ACL injuries before the Euros. We had Katoto during the Euros, Pateas beforehand, Simone McGill did hers as well. Kaya Simon has just announced just announced today um, for Tottenham has done her ACL. Um, I think we had Lucy Watson at Chelsea, Hannah Godfrey at Charlton, Jane Ross for Scotland. Like that's just the last few weeks. Um, and it just seems crazy that not enough is being done to kind of research this. Yeah, there is not. There is just um, not enough research into into the you know female body um, hormones, how that can affect um, your you know your, your bones and your muscles, um, how it can affect your your training patterns. Obviously, menstrual cycle, everything. There's so many different um, factors that add up to optimal and elite performance that we just don't have the the knowledge and the detail yet. And I don't think we'll see that for for um, another you know maybe five five six seven years because it takes time to collect that detail um and it's like we're always you know obviously the profession of the women's game um i think that has obviously affected the amount of research because it wasn't high up on the agenda or the list of priorities so um subsequently we've we've suffered massively um and unfortunately i think this ends up in in a higher rate of injury and don't don't get me started on them acls and and periods and you know, how our hips are aligned. It's just not fair. <laughs> I mean, they're massively important topics. And I think it's not just the, the, you know, the impact of the physical injury itself and, you know, the damage that that does to your body. And, you know, the rehab period is such a long period of time. You're out for a season, maybe a season and a half. You go through surgery. Um, but, you know, as well as that, you're also, you know, not with the squad. You're in, you know, the strength and conditioning coaches room or you're in the physio room and you're not, you know, enjoying the kind of, you know, squad experiences that, that you get from being a part of the team. And I think, it's that emotional kind of um, isolation that I think can sometimes be really difficult as well. So I think, you know, as well as the data that people are gathering on um, injuries and hopefully we see more of that start to come out, I think there also needs to be like a big um, push in terms of kind of the emotional welfare of athletes who are going through injuries because it's, um, yeah, it's pretty it's pretty hardcore. It's pretty pretty hard sometimes. I don't know how, how you found it, Claire, sort of going through through that emotionally, the mental impact of it and whether you had sort of, um, you know, physio buddies or, or someone that you could kind of, um, you know, get that support from yeah I mean being injured is very very lonely place um, there's a lot of isolated training there's a lot of you know you're training you, 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 you're allowed to join in little bits of, of of training sessions but not all and then you're just having to train at different times um, and mental health wise it can massively impact you um, I think to be honest mine at the time didn't impact me as much um, as it has done post career because I found like um, that I actually hadn't dealt with maybe some of my frustrations and that's what leaked um, outposts when I retired because I'm kind of done with football when I felt like I shouldn't be so I think that the long-term impact of, of, it, of, of injuries and how that can affect your mental health as well as the short-term impact is very very important um, and it needs to be it needs to be prioritised actually I think it, people need to look after these players and I think that goes back to what we were saying just about the processes of, of player welfare. 
Yeah, massively. And I think, um, you know, just, just to touch on there, obviously, after your retirement, you, you went on to uh, to work with Chelsea. You were is it commercial manager with, with Chelsea. Is that right? If I got that right? Yeah, yeah I was um, uh, dealing with some of the sponsorships, so sponsorship sales manager within the commercial team. So, yeah, I retired. Um, and then the next week I joined the commercial team. So I didn't really give myself much time to um, <laughs> to take that step away. But, um, but, yeah, I think it was a fantastic opportunity, a great role. Um, I learned I learned a lot from it, but um, I decided that it, it, I think having been at the club for such a long time and, and feeling like that was kind of who I was, I needed to, to kind of find out who I was myself without Chelsea. So I've been through quite a bit of a process in doing that, um, and has taken a little bit of a, of a step away from football actually, just to kind of find out who I am really, um, which has been which has been interesting to say the least. <laughs> Love that. And now you're working in transfers, but in the men's side of the game. Um, yeah, how's that been going so far? Yeah, it's great. It's a company called Transfer Room. Um, obviously, we're working on the transparency with, with, within the marketplace. And um, it's an online platform um, that just, just opens the doors to, to clubs clubs and agents um, in order to to get get deals done. And yeah, I think it's it's a great... It's something actually that I think it would be really useful in the women's game um, for that transparency aspect. I think um, I would have loved to have been able to be on a platform and, and chosen which club I would, would be able to go to next. I think when I come to the end of my career, I didn't really have any options. Um, so, yeah, I think uh, it will be something, hopefully, for women's football in the future. Um, but, yeah, I think for, it, it is fantastic for the whole game. Um, and yeah, just just that transparency of of the money that's kind of involved in in, in transfers and um, and the open conversations that sometimes we don't see. No, it's often hush hush. Yeah, I mean we're starting to see these big transfer, um, you know, this big transfer money happening in the women's game now, um, sort of record breaking figures um, for, from this season in terms of you know players coming over and being bought. So um, yeah, watch this space. Claire Rafferty leading the way on the women's transfer market. I can't wait to see it. Um, but no, I think that's probably the best place to, to finish up because that is just, um, I mean, that's unreal. But um, thank you so much for, for, for sharing your journey with us, Claire, and, you know, for coming on, um, you know, speaking really openly and honestly about, you know, the impact of injuries. I know it's, um, it's always an emotional topic, um, sort of talking about your retirement and things like that. So um, really insightful. Yeah, really though. appreciate that. Um, no, thanks yeah. for having me, guys. Um, all right, that's it, gang. Uh, thanks for listening to Upfront. If you've got any questions for us, hit us up on Twitter uh, at Morgie underscore 89 or at Girls on the Ball or at CL Rafferty One. We will see you next week. Upfront is a stack production and part of the Acast Creator Network. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great, too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. 
Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com.